0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to our brand new episode of the Silmarillion Film Project. I'm your co-host, Dave Kale, and we have a packed episode today. Um, In addition to sort of the usual uh, routine where we will be going through and brainstorming and outline... um, and talking through various issues, and when I say outline, I mean very hand-wavy, um, going through issues, talking <laughs> issues and characters and ideas for uh, an episode, and this episode uh, we'll be talking about um, the princes of the elderly, we'll be talking about um, Fanor's childhood, which uh, I know has been eagerly anticipated. Um, we're also going to be going over actual script outlines from some of the past episodes that have been uh, passed to us by our writers, and we'll, of course, be doing what all networks do, and Issuing them all kinds of notes that makes it virtually impossible for them to uh, complete a coherent script afterwards. So that's right. Let's get yeah. Let's get started on that. Uh, I am joined <laughs> as always by uh, the Tolkien Maven Trish Lambert and the Tolkien Professor Corey Olson. And how are you two today?
1: Excellent. Very good. Excellent. Very good. Yeah, oh, yeah. I'm uh, feeling a little slow witted today, but we'll see what we can do. Um, the our morning time is feeling right, earlier in, in the morning than usual. But yeah. Okay. Anyway. Uh, so welcome back, everybody. Thanks. Before we get uh, started, I want to make sure to uh, do some quick announcements and reminders because uh, as just as last week, we are uh, in the very middle here now of our fundraising campaign for Signum University, um, which has been just great. We've made wonderful progress. We are uh, just under $20,000 total raised so far in our campaign, which is really really great. Um, we're working up yeah. towards, we're almost halfway through our w- what we need for the annual fund for the year, so that's absolutely spectacular. Um, and uh, so I just, thanks everybody for, you know, thanks to the, to the generosity of the folks who have already donated, and uh, if you haven't gotten a chance to yet, I, I, I hope that you will consider supporting Signum and Mythgard and all the programs that we run over the course of the year. Uh, we can't do Uh, any of it, really, uh, without your help. So uh, I really appreciate the gifts that have been coming in. Um, We uh, have a couple, uh, two primary special uh, 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 events that I want to draw your attention to. Of course, as always during the campaign, we have our our special events celebrating all the different programs that we do. And uh, this coming week, we have the beginning of of really the, the one of the two biggest events uh during the entire campaign and that is our special seminar on a secret vice. Um secret vice of course is a the a very recent book released just in the last couple months uh uh edited by Andrew Higgins and Dimitri Femi it's a it's a new edition of Tolkien's famous essay a secret vice which was published uh, you, you can you can find you can find the the old uh, uh uh less full version of this uh in the book the monsters and the critics and it's basically Tolkien the a talk that Tolkien gave about language creation about his, so his his relationship with language and he talks in that essay a lot about his own history like how he invented languages as a child and the games he used to play and you know the 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 old original languages that he began inventing when he was like the age that Fëanor came up with the Fëanorian script and all that kind of thing um so anyway it, it's a, it's a really fascinating essay well in 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 editing it uh, Dr. Feemy and Dr. Higgins uh, made a, a bunch of new discoveries that have never been published, and 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 stuff that we never really knew uh, about Tolkien and his language invention. So, in this seminar, they're going to be the, the, both the, the editors themselves are going to be hosting this seminar. It's not just me talking this time. We're we uh, uh, we're, we're, we're going to bring in the editors of the book, um, and they're going to be walking you through uh, some of the uh, some of the really cool insights and stuff that they learned in the course of editing the book. So. Uh, if you want to think more about Tolkien's languages if you're interested in if you're interested in his languages and and his language creation process uh, I strongly encourage you to attend this uh seminar the first session is with Dr. Higgins and that is going to be on Sunday October 9th so just 2 days from now um, and then the second episode is going to be uh on Tuesday the what would that be 18th Tuesday the 18th um, of October, and that's going to be with Dr. Feemy, and then the two of them together on the 25th will be doing uh, Tuesday the 25th will be doing a, a, a sort of a, a big Q and A session with everybody. So um, I'm, uh, this is just a it's a, it's it's a really neat uh, opportunity, uh, which I hope. You, now those of you who are listening to this on the recording and thinking, well, great, thanks for announcing something that's happening in two days, and I you know it's, it will likely be more than two days later that you are listening to this. In fact, you. Maybe listening to this three years from now, uh, long after this has gone past. But of course, the recordings of this will be available uh, as well. So you'll be able to find the video recording on YouTube, um, and you'll be able to find audio recordings on our pod- podcast streams as well. So um, those will be freely available. Uh, and it's going to be cool. So again, the time is 4 PM. All of these uh sessions are going to be 4 PM Eastern time. And that's, uh, uh, so it's a, it's a nice Europe friendly time because of course, both, uh, Demetra and, uh, uh, Andrew are over in the UK. So, um, so, uh, the Europeans will be happy with the times of these sessions. Um, but, uh, yeah, I know Brian, uh, Brian Federini is complaining that for him, it's 4 a.m. I know it's, there's always the way, right? And whenever we have something, it it's, wins. it's always, it's always, uh, it's always an awkward time for someone somewhere in the world. Uh, but, uh. You know, there it is. So anyway, so I hope that you will uh, take advantage of the Secret Vice uh, seminar, which is going to be really neat. And we will have more such seminars planned uh, in a series throughout the year, where we're going to be bringing in Tom Shippey to talk about the Beowulf. We're going to be bringing in Roland Flieger to be talking about Kullervo. Um, so all of these different books that have been, you know, these Tolkien books that have been lately released. Um, over the last, you know, five to ten years, um, we're going to be having the editors and and you know major scholars in to 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 talk about those. So, all right. Um, now, the uh, second thing that I wanted, to, and, and I'm going to go into less detail, uh, but just to kind of put it on your calendar, uh, I said that the Secret Vice was one of the two biggest events of the entire uh, fall fundraising campaign season. The other biggest event is the campaign ending webathon, which is scheduled for Sunday, October 30th. Um, and so uh, the webathon is a, is an annual tradition where I broadcast for, uh, for the whole day and a bunch of different segments related to, to all kinds of different things that we do. Um, so there's going to be a, it's going to be, it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, I think that uh, one of the things that you guys will be most interested in as Silmarillion Film Project followers, uh, we're going to have a special session, uh, a special discussion with the, the, the script writers um, who have been doing so much good work behind the scenes. Uh, and they are, so they're you know, sort of coming along behind us and cleaning up our mess. And um, we're going to have a talk with them. And our, our, our primary subject for this session is going to be the frame. Um, you'll notice we haven't talked about the frame in several episodes, um, several of our sessions. Well, the reason for this is I'm now officially procrastinating that because we're gonna, we're gonna see if we can map out the, the frame, the shape of the frame for the entire season, uh, during that, during that episode. So, um, ambitious. Yeah, yeah, that's the. That's the plan. So I hope you'll be able to join us for uh, a spe- that special script discussion. And by the way, if you missed the special session that we had earlier this week on Monday evening, um, our discussion with Ted Naismith, um, the, uh, the, the, the the painter, the artist who uh, did the illustrations on the, the, the illustrated Silmarillion. Um, he started by telling that I asked him to tell the story of how, he ended up getting that gig like, you know, how do you become the painter who is, you know, gets the sanction of Christopher Tolkien, working with Christopher Tolkien on illustrations that, you know, to be included in an actual illustrated, you know, like the official illustrated edition of the Silmarillion. I mean, it seems like a pretty amazing gig. You know, how, how did that how did that come about? And his story was was really neat uh, to 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 hear that. I-
2: I vote that Ted be the Allen lead/ slash John howe of our project
1: of the Silmarine, Yeah, I agree I think it, absolutely you know, he was he uh, was was he, very great. interested in the project that we were doing he was telling me by email afterwards that uh, that he found you know the whole you know, many of the issues that we were discussing and and sort of the questions we were asking and the the issues that we were raising really really stimulating he said he could actually see some uh, uh, some really interesting uh, uh, you know future paintings coming coming awesome. out of it oh, so cool. he was really well, interested nice. to uh, yeah uh, to talk uh, but so I'm thinking, yeah, I'm thinking basically, you know, Ted could be our official consultant. I'd like to bring Ted in at, you know, at, at the very least for a, a sort of a, a season-ending uh, episode. You know, one of our season-ending episodes where we go back and talk about, uh, you know, the visuals and casting and all that stuff. I think it'd be fun to sort of yeah. revisit the season and, and do some uh, do some review and uh, more concrete brainstorming with Ted. Uh, at the end of the season. Now the
2: episode so. is already up on YouTube, right? It is. is it yeah.
1: On- so if you if you go to the Signum YouTube channel, you can find uh the uh the Ted Naismith video there. Um uh, it's good to see the video because we do talk about s- uh, several of his paintings. Um in particular, so it's it's good if you can. Yeah, have put a it new one out. he got a
2: new one out too, so that's you know one that um, he just released. It kind of has bearing on ours, right? It yes, the arrival yes. at Cariscalliphons. So.
1: Yes, yeah, exactly. So yeah, we we, we did sp- spend some time talking about those, and uh, anyway, so and the um it's also it should be or will be soon. Uh, um, uploaded the audio version to the to the podcast stream as well, so. Anyway, okay. so those are things, things past and things to look forward to. And meanwhile, let's get back to uh, let's get back to the project here. So I want to start off by talking. We were sent a copy of the uh, the script outlines uh, for episodes one through four. Uh, So just to remind everybody, that's episode one, The Awakening at Quivianen, episode two, uh, The Trip of the Ambassadors to Valinor, episode three, The Debate, about whether to leave Quivianon or not. And then episode four, um, was both Lenway sp- meeting the ends and splitting off and, uh, and then, uh, uh Elway get, you know, meeting million and, and getting lost. Um, so that's, those are the episodes that they, that they outlined. Um, they ended their outlines with, uh, a few specific questions. They had a list of issues for the execs to solve for us. They called, they called it. So um and their first question was about Ingwe. Ingwe of course, the lord of the Vanyar. And their question is does Ingwe really need to be the first elf to wake up? Um and they really kind of want uh his uh his parents. To, they, they want him to be a second generation elf instead of a first generation elf because they want his parents to be able to be uh, abducted uh by the by the dark rider. Um mm and uh uh and they they they're, they're they're having some issues because uh they decided that it should be his sister um <clears throat> Indus's mom who is taken uh by the dark rider uh it, within the frame that we had um but then they were pointing out that this creates a problem because obviously if he was a first elf awakened he wouldn't have siblings um, cuz you you kind of need parents before you can have a sibling um And, uh, so, okay. Um, what, first of all, (laughs) let me point out, this is a problem you guys created for yourselves. You will remember, we said that it should be his wife that was taken and you guys, y'all didn't want his wife to be taken. Uh, and your rationale for this, which I can totally understand is that you want Finway's bereavement, uh, at the death of Muriel to be, to sort of stand alone, you know, not to just have him be yet another elf who lost his wife. Um, but for that to be really, uh, you know, for, for that particular, for, for Finway to be kind of leading the way in that, in that particular thing. And I get that, you know, we do, um, we do want to, uh, Uh, to make sure that the the story of Finway and Muriel is sufficiently, you know, powerful and not just like yet another example. I agree with that. However, I don't believe that that means that he he has to be the first and only one. Um, In fact, I think it could be handled in such a way that it actually foreshadows it and even really kind of prepares us for it or even... um, by contrast makes it the more tragic. It's one thing to be living in, you know, like the rough and wild days over in middle earth when all the world is strange and, and dark things are creeping out of the woods to, to capture stuff. When you get to Valinor, right. And you've arrived at the undying lands and you've come to safety. And, and Finway has every reason to believe that like they've now come to the place where like, you know, there shall be no suffering and no tears. And then to lose his wife and to lose his wife under those circumstances, the death of Muriel, the death of Muriel of, you know, through like, you know, weariness and grief is so different from the, you know, uh, the, the loss, you know, by, you know, by violence essentially. Um, uh, so yeah, I, I, um, I don't think that, um, I don't think that the one spoils the other. I think it can foreshadow the. It, it can be basically a counterpart of it, um, and be made the more. Yeah, because more I think the poignant. Muriel
2: Muriel thing is much. It's very different. It's very different. I mean,
1: it's very. And again, you know. it's like the context, right? The shocking thing. It, in some ways, I actually kind of like the idea of a repetition because it makes it like doubly shocking. Like I never thought that I would lose my wife too here, like from Valinor, right? You know, the right. idea that like you would think yourself secure from any such possibility of repetition. To, to
2: villain, to yeah, exactly. There's no villain, no bad guy. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's like there's no the cause is internal, not external. Yeah.
1: Exactly. Um so so anyway okay, okay, to that, that script people are all like trying, trying to, to hang on, guys. Like I, I, I know there's more issues. I'm addressing the one issue first, which was that you. This is this is why you want it to be a sister in the first place. Um, and I know that technically he needs a sister. This is this is likely why we got Ingwe's parents in the first place. Um, I I don't like Ingwe being a second generation elf. Um, I can see. I can see. One benefit I can see from it. Well, first of all, it enables us to give him a sister. But frankly, I don't care if he has a sister or not. Um, that is, like, Indus' relationship to him doesn't have to even be that clear. Or make her his daughter. I don't care. Like, I mean, it doesn't really matter that she's his niece. Like, the 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 niecehood of Indus is to me not a not an essential story point really at all. Um, I I think that uh, she could be his daughter. She could just be ambiguously like of the kin or of the house of Ingwe, um, to me, again, that's not, um, that's not essential. Um, uh, uh, Marie says if Indus is Ing- Ingwe's daughter, then she must be present at Quivien. And yeah, I'm fine with that. I mean, she can be young at, Qu- at Quivien. And in fact, I, as I recall in the outline, you guys mentioned the possibility of having Indus young at Quivien, you know, little Indus at, at, Vienna, which I think would be fine, which I think would be great. Um, I mean, because we do have to establish, I mean, we we don't want, I, with elves, it's different, obviously, like the, you know, the the idea of like an age gap between spouses is obviously a different issue when you're immortal, right? So, um, you know, the fact that like the husband is born a couple thousand years before the wife wouldn't really matter to elves so much as it might matter to humans. But still, um, we do kind of want to establish that Indus is of Finway's general kind of rough generation, right? That she's, she's, she's in the ballpark and not like, you know, Feanor's age essentially, which could look creepy. Um, so I like introducing her earlier. So she could be like, we could have like adolescent Indus at, uh, and I'd be fine with that. Um, but, uh, okay. Okay. So, so, and again, I don't care what relation she is with Ingwe. it uh, didn't have to be niece. doesn't matter. Um, but what does matter to me more is the bigger issue of kind of how we're contextualizing it here's the benefit i would see of making ingwe a second generation elf the the benefit is that we give this this it help it it could help in the sense of the passage of time right one of the challenges that we have to 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 deal with right is the idea that in every single element every part of this story a bunch of time passes, like hundreds or even a thousand years of the sun are passing while, you know, like there's a, the, 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 the Teleri spend a thousand years on Tol Eressëa before they come to Valinor, uh, according to the annals. So, you know, like giving the idea that uh, when we join the elf story right with ingway and Finway and elway um that there is a generation before them that they've been already you know the the the, the sense that that provides of like well they've been at Quivien and already for some time and, and 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 an ambiguous amount of time uh has passed um is uh i could see a benefit to that but to me frankly that benefit is seriously outweighed by the reduction of ingway status um i think that there is something, and I don't know. Maybe it's just me, but I don't think it's just me. There is something. There is a powerful mythic force in the idea of, um, this elf has been around since the beginning. Like when you are meeting Ingwe on screen, um, or talking, you know, like this is like the the idea of making him the first elf to awaken, which, first of all, again gives some sense of why he would be held to be the high king of all the elves we that's i think i believe if i remember correctly which i usually don't that's the context in which we were discussing the idea of him being the first elf awoken because we wanted to establish some justification for him being considered high king um but having him have that sort of mythic mantle, right? Like he is the, he is the Adam of the elves. He is the, you know, he is, he is the first and original elf. It gives a kind of awe to his character and through him to the Teleri as a whole, which seems to me a really important element of this story. And if we don't have that, if, 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 if we never meet the original elf, right? If every single, if 100% of our elf characters are all just elves from kind of down the line, right, which is essentially what we'd be saying, then we lose that sense of like any single character in our story who could say, I was there from the beginning. And that's really powerful to be able to, I mean... yeah, That seems seems important. (laughs) It really does. I mean, that always struck me so much in Tolkien. Like, hearing Treebeard talk about the first age, right? And it's like, are you kidding? I mean, remember Frodo's reaction at the Council of Elrond, right? But but I thought the fall of Gilgalad was a long ago time, right? When when he's struck by the fact that here's Elrond blithely remembering the Battle of the Last Alliance, right? And that that sense of awe that Frodo is overcome with such that he blurts it out, right? Like, holy cow, you've been... And he knows this in theory, right? But he's just like wrapping his brain around the idea that this guy that he's hearing from was actually there at the fall of Gilgalad. And that same sense... I mean, I remember having that with Treebeard, right? And hearing Treebeard and realizing, wow. Wow. With Tom Bombadil, right. When he's, when he says, I remember, right. You know, I, I, I saw the little people arriving. Right. And I remember the, you know, I remember, I remember, and it goes back and back and back the day that I sort of realized like, Whoa, how long has in the shipwright been there? Right. I mean, it's, you know, he's older than all of them. Um, you know, I, to me, that was, um, um, that was, that was, uh, that was really cool. Um, Marie still wants him to have a sister. No, he can't have a sister, Marie. If he's the original elf, as you pointed out, he can't have a sibling. If he's the original elf, he can't. Um, I, I don't know. I <laughs> If you guys want to make some justification why you're so all fired, insistent upon having Indus be his niece in particular, um, like, I have, have, have her be his first cousin once removed. I don't care. Um, uh, but it, it's... You know, or his like, I, you know, I get daughter. Why not daughter? I'm fine with daughter. Do we have, Do we, does, does he need another, does he, is there any reason he can't have a daughter? Anyway, um, so that's why I'm thinking conceptually, it's super important that we have like the voice of antiquity and that kind of venerability and antiquity is, is like, to me, that's like really the only function of Ingway. Like what the heck else is he going to do in our story, right? You know, so I, I think that's kind of, not only unimportant role for him, that's kind of the role for him as far as, as far as I can see. Um, but, uh, anyway, um, uh, yeah. Now, Hakan points out that all of the unbegotten could be considered siblings. True enough, right? Absolutely. Wait, if we want to call her his niece, he can call her his niece. Absolutely, right? And we we don't have to worry about like the genetics of it. Nobody has to has to like get out a generational flowchart to like justify it or anything. Um, but um, yeah, yeah. Um, and Nick says because he would have more to say about her marriage to Finway. Well, Nicky'd have even more if she were his daughter, wouldn't he? Uh, so. Uh, that, uh, <laughs>
2: She can be his niece the way that Frodo is uh, is Bilbo's nephew. Uh,
1: yeah. which is not, right? They're actually. Well like the second cousins twice removed. But yeah, I mean if you're gonna have cousins there have to be there have to be siblings well, involved at some point might. up the chain. But uh um uh yeah. Yeah. Anyway, um, so, you know, like, like, you know, whatever. It's all good. I mean, we could
2: have we could have uh, take an avuncular interest in her without necessarily being.
1: And she could just be vaguely his kin. Their really their exact relationship needn't ever be stated. Unless, again, if you really want there to have. I mean, uh, uh, I think it was. uh, Was it? Yeah. It was Nick who was concerned that he be sort of directly involved in the remarriage question, which is cool. And I, I like that. In which case, daughter, then. You know, if we really want him to be like giving his blessing, uh, you know, like that kind of thing, then okay. Yeah. Daughter. That seems like he's easily solved. Um, uh, you guys were also fishing for more cool things to do in Valinor. Uh, that was one of the things in their outlines. They were this sort of expressing that they were kind of struggling with. Um,
0: and they say cool things to do in Valinor. Are they talking like, um sightseeing sightseeing for the ambassadors yeah
1: exactly they they were they were the the ambassador episode they were expressing feeling a little bit uh a little bit light on significant things for them to do you know i get i i i i believe in order for it not to just feel like a you know a sort of a hokey guided tour essentially um Ooh, Hakan has a great idea, as he so often does. Uh, he says that Ingwe's wife could return, making it different from Mirio. That would be really interesting. Actually, oh, that's
0: pretty. Good. I like that.
1: If later on she returns, um, yeah, interesting. And it
2: could be a Calabrian foreshadow, and it could also affect Ingwe's decision to stand Valinor if she's right. somehow affected by her experience and then going over there, she recovers. He doesn't want to go back again. I mean, or he, yeah, he's like, he's going to stay with man. Boy, thanks a lot. I <laughs> will yeah. just stay here. Me Mario, and my wife will just stay here.
1: F- from Mando's. Yes. No, not Chris as a half orc. I'm thinking, but, uh, um, yeah, anyway. Okay. All right. So, um, ambassadors, things for them to do. Um, well, the one most obvious sort of conceptual opportunity that episode two provides us is as, well, sort of establishing an orderly transition between season one and season two, right? Episode one of season two, the Quivienan episode, doesn't involve the Valar very much. And what it establishes is sort of a contrast, right? We we, we jump into the world of the elves, and we get again one of the characters that we knew from season one. That you know, so we we have all these characters in season one, right? That you know, so presumably our audience, which is both um, uh, both enormous, widespread, and and uh, and incredibly riveted by the show, um, <laughs> so our completely our completely dedicated audience has come to know and love the Valar in season one, and they so so it, it's it's kind of a neat effect to meet this this whole new cast here in the first episode of season two. But then in that first episode, we have a, this point of contact with the old cast, which is Orame. But the cool thing is that seeing Orame in the new context, all of a sudden, it looks different, right? Because he is, like, bigger and shinier and it's, you know, we emphasize the contrast between uh, between them. Episode two brings them together, right? It really is I think conceptually can be used as more of a transitional thing where we're sort of showing the story kind of being passed off from the Valar to the, um, uh, to the ambassadors. So I think um, exactly Nick. Yeah. We didn't really realize how big he was in season one that could easily be done where essentially this is the first time we've just like the elves provide a kind of scale that, we didn't have in season one, right? Because everybody was big in season one. Um, so yeah, Nick, I really like the possibility that 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 first episode creates, where it like actually makes you look back over the entirety of season one and be like, "Wow, okay, now I like see the whole thing from different eyes," and I realize like they were all big all along, right? Um, I, I like that. I think that's really neat. Um, my general advice, I think, is I would for episode two there. Make it less about the ambassadors. I mean, that seems odd because, like, the ambassadors are the whole point of the show, uh, you know, of the episode. But what I mean is, have it be as much about the Valar as it is about the ambassadors. Instead of thinking, like, what stuff, um, what stuff can the um, uh, can the ambassadors be seeing and thinking and doing in Valinor? Um, I mean, we do need to think about that but that doesn't have to be the entire episode. We don't have to fill the entire episode with that. A lot of it can be the Valar themselves. Um, I would be, you know, I, I, and even conversations in which the ambassadors themselves can sometimes be involved and sometimes not <laughs> conversations behind the ambassador's backs. Essentially. Nick says kind of, kind of, um, uh, yeah. I mean, sort of. Yeah. Um, but but again, what remember that this is there are really only a few moments in this season where we're really going to get to spend time with the Valar, you know, with our whole cast from from uh, from from epi- from season one. And mm-hmm. episode two is one of the two primary ones, the other being the trial episode, the one we're segueing to for next session. Um, so we really want to take advantage of the opportunity to hang out with our previous characters. Right. And to use this as a way for, for to sort of show their concerns and to use them and the, the framework that we will have established because, you know, the sort of the personalities and interests and, uh, uh, and everything of, of the Valar we've, we've, we've established and people are familiar with from season one. And we can use that as a way to prime people for what to expect there in season two. Um my, um, my thought is as far as specific things, um, that like they can be doing or should be doing, I, I think I would want to emphasize the sub creation of the elves, um, That is not just having them see things, but having them learning things. Um, Because it's not, I mean, of course it's, it's about, you know, Finway and Aule and the, 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 the Noldor obviously, but it's more than, I mean, the, remember the Vanyar are all about poetry, right? They're all about making too, but they're about, they're about, you know, the music of words. Um, So I I mean, I if i'm thinking of like what are the elves really up to i think that the main thing that i would see is both like just meeting the valar and their their increased respect of and reverence for the valar but also just like them learning and the trees and you know so so it's you know what what draws the ambassadors to valinor uh the person you know the persons of the valar themselves right the splendor of Valinor, which would be primarily embodied in the trees, and the opportunity that it presents of of uh of learning. Uh Karita wants a training montage. Yeah, Karita, I'm thinking like a because I mean what could be more gripping, right? Than like a poetry like a training montage. Yeah. Oh. Just like Rambo, <laughs> except or, or or Rocky, except uh poetry recitation. Poetry. Right. Art. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A montage wow. of somebody learning how to scan lines properly. Right. Uh, like how to how to how to like balance your ims and your trochies. I mean, that's gripping TV. Right. I mean, that's yeah. pretty. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, so yeah. Definitely.
0: Maybe you want to spice it up. Turn it into like a rap battle or something. Hey, you know, like I'm mean, gonna uh, be spinning out some rhymes. That that. that well, I think you should also yeah.
2: include how to tune a lute. That should be
0: in there also how to do the yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah. Music, music has got to be there. Right. Um, uh, and I'm thinking that can be, you know, Elway can be, can be about the music. I mean, the Tulare were the most musical uh, of, of, of the peoples. Um, so uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I go, it looks like everybody agrees that rap battles is what the Silmarillion needs more of. Hey, you know, I'd, but like, I know. See, karita, cuz the problem is there's only one, right? The Silmarillion only has its as as it stands in its published form, the Silmarillion only has one rap battle and you're right, it needs more. Clearly, it needs more. Um as everybody knows, obviously, the battle between Sauron and, and uh Finrod was a rap battle, very explicitly. Exactly, yeah, Marie, of course, knew just what I was talking about. Um so uh so yeah, no, we absolutely need more of that. Um uh yep, yep, so that will all be good. Um uh, okay, so this leads me to a, a one of the one one of the issues that I had though um oh, is boy. um finway okay so <laughs> <laughs> the the script writers started doing this whole comedy. Like all of a sudden we were, we were, we were like doing the, 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 the marriage, like the engagement and marriage of Finway and Muriel. And like all of a sudden a comedy of manners broke out. Right. It was like, uh, Muriel suddenly became like a Bronte heroine, uh, in like episode one and two. And I, I was a little surprised by that. <laughs> Um, (laughs) and, and there are things I kind of, I kind of like, I mean, I can tell you guys were really having fun with it. Uh, and, and it became it in moments, almost a parody of a comedy of manners, uh, which I thought was really funny. Um, but here's my problem. My problem is that, um, In reading the outlines, I came away with the impression that Finway is just basically going to be like a weak-willed, henpecked husband, even before he's married. He's just, like, maundering around uh, Valinor, moping for his girlfriend, and kind of depressed because he kind of likes Valinor, and he's like, yeah, I'd really like to come, but, like, the missus just isn't going to go for it. Like, I'm never going to be be able to get the permission
2: to... to, Dagwood, Dagwood way.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's so, and, 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 and he, anyway, he was just like so gloomy and, and didn't have any sort of opinions of his own. Um, and in the end, I thought Finway was too weak. Now we talked about the weakness of, of, uh, of Finway's um, character. And I like the, uh, the Conflict. I do, so, so Nick is wondering how how I'm going to introduce conflict into that episode. Um, well, the con in episode two, the primary conflict in episode two is among the Valar. You know the, the the the. I think that actually there needn't be that much conflict within the ambassadors themselves. The ambassadors themselves can all be you know, all over pleased about Valinor and, and they can all be like more or less unanimous and thinking that Valinor is awesome. And that itself can be part of the tension as like Omo is looking on and face palming, right. While the ambassadors are gushing about Valinor and he's like, no, this uh, guys, dang it. Um. So, so yeah, I, I, I do think that um we, um, I do think that, 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 the conflict doesn't have to be elvish. And it doesn't and, and Finway he, he, here's 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 what I was thinking about Finway. Um I don't want him just to be weak from the beginning. If he's just like Because why on earth would he even be a leader? Why would anyone follow that limp noodle that, that, uh, you know, is like has no opinions of his own, goes along, goes along to Valinor because he can't stand up to Elway, uh, and then like is, is, is like bossed around by his girlfriend and wife after that. Um, it's, it's, he has to be a leader. He has to inspire the Noldor to leave. And to come with him, most of them, anyway, to leave and to come with him. So here's my... About the weakness of Finway's character, I'm thinking that should be a fanor issue. He shouldn't be a weak character. Like, maybe he has doubts and is uncertain. And we'd talked at the time about sort of Elway convincing him to come along and have him be the least enthusiastic of the three ambassadors upon their setting off for Valinor. But then to have him get... Really fiery and enthusiastic about it, and in particular, I he, the thing that kind of uh, hung up hung me up most about Finway and Valinor as as he was depicted in the outlines is that even like meeting Aule and seeing the smithcraft of Aule and Finway's kind of like yeah, but the wife won't go for it, so it doesn't matter. I mean, it's it's like he's not going to be thinking about the misses when he you know he's. He's gonna, I mean, or rather, he may be thinking about the missus, but his thoughts would all be about, you know, he can't wait to tell her and show her all of sure, the things yeah. that he's learned. And exactly. like, we've got to go it. over that. You're gonna love it here. I like, trust me, it's gonna be awesome, right? So, I mean, that's, that's gotta be, uh, Finway's character. Yeah, so Hakan, exactly. Finway being passionate rather than weak. I agree. Now, where he becomes weak, I would say, is again later on with feanor it will his be his spot. love for Fe- exactly spot. feanor is his blind spot um so it's not that he's just an endemically weak character it's just that he has a blind spot for feanor especially after the death of muriel well i mean of course like feanor is all after the death of muriel but but i mean because of the death of muriel he favors feanor and he has a, a blind spot is exactly the right phrase for it Trish right it's just a, it, he's. it's not that he's generally weak it's that right. he can't see he won't see, see. Feanor's right. problems and so he keeps going along with Feanor either because he's oblivious to the, the the truth about Feanor like so many other parents have been oblivious to the faults of their children or because he's trying to save him right or be, you know he thinks he can redeem him or, or talk him around or whatever um, so You know, that's where I, so I, having him actually be quite a, you know, especially once he gets to Valinor, one of the things we do want to show, I think, from the ambassador's uh, visit to Valinor is them changed. Right, them transformed, and I really like that. I I love the idea that you guys had in the outlines. When the when the ambassadors come back, the first thing that the elves of Quivienen see is like these three shining figures coming back towards them, and they they think it's like another visitation by the Valar, but it's the elves, right? You know, it's it's the ambassadors. That the ambassadors themselves are now like, you know, have that have some of the 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 glamour of Valinor still on them, which of course we know is true. Uh, from the you know when the elves return, you know when when the Noldor returned to Middle Earth, that they've been. Changed by their time over there, um, and so I think some, in order to really like bring home the transformation of Valner, we need at least one of the ambassadors to be like psychologically changed. You know, not just to look different, uh, uh, but to be, but to be. You know, so having Finway come back now, having him going over there a little dubious, a little bit uneasy, and having him come back just being, incre- you know, full of fire like- and enthusiasm.
2: Not only that, but that is going to make Muriel's death all the more poignant because mm-hmm. he has been so. He was so effusive and so like, you're going to love it and it's wonderful and come. She may be a little dubious maybe when they first talk right. in Quibianon. Um and then you know that just adds to his burden right. of guilt, if you will, when she dies there, uh, because he you know he was so effusive about getting her to come. Yeah. So that would be. Another piece of it, too.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, so thinking specifically of Muriel, um, they uh, the in, in the outlines, they did this really cool thing with Vire in episode two, uh, where Vire shows. Uh, Finway, a tapestry, you know, an image that she has woven depicting him sitting next to Muriel with their child in his arms. Um, and that, and that it would be like at the spot, like in Lorien, basically. Um, I really, really like the idea of him seeing that, um, the, the way that it got introduced in the outline, like with her coming and making this sort of potent, portentous revelation to him, um, I'm not, I wasn't sure about that. And the reason, the thing I don't really like about that is that it it makes, I don't like, What's Vire's motivation? Um, because it kind of, one could easily think that she was just like out to deceive him or something. Um, a, a, you know, a God with knowledge of the future who reveals an ambivalent vision of the future to someone which that person misunderstands or misinterprets as an inspiration to action. Like Oedipus here, of course, is what I'm thinking of. As an example, like normally the mortal in question has to seek out that information. Right. And therefore, by seeking it out, take there take some responsibility for both the having of the information and the and the use they make of it and the interpretation that they make of it. Um, if the God just comes to them then it's just like it looks malicious right just to be like hey i'm going to show you an ambiguous glimpse of the future which is probably going to mislead you (laughs) yeah and that and that i mean again i'm not saying that that's what you were suggesting viri is doing but my fear is that that's what it might look like basically if she but i do like the idea nevertheless um uh if they could go to the like the you know the outer like the, the 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 I was going to say the waiting room, but the waiting room in the halls of Mando's has a different significance, right? Um, sort of the guest area, you know, the just visiting portion oh, yeah. of uh, of uh, of the halls of Mando's. Um. Uh. So yeah, and and Marie, yeah, you're right. Especially since Vire doesn't speak, it makes her motives particularly unclear, right? Um. But anyway, if. So they, him- If they just just
0: happened to see it, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, He 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 would, and he
1: would be really struck by it, obviously.
2: Um, but excited uh, because, of course, it looked like a happy family unit, right?
1: Right, right. Or maybe he again. Maybe we show him seeking out, um, knowledge, whether it be knowledge of the future explicitly that he's seeking out, or you know, knowledge of uh, his wife or um. Marie asks if I'm okay with living elves being in Vire's
2: workroom. But it wouldn't be, would it? It would yeah. be an already finished tapestry in the Yeah, not the necessarily
1: foyer. a workroom. But Marie, I, I what I what I, I, I do I really like the idea of Vire kind of taking center stage briefly. Um, I love the I love the you know the 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 concept of Vire's weaving um, you know, from the Silmarillion and we you know we we kinda of talked about building that up some this does seem a really neat opportunity to build it up. And I, I love the idea of the sort of ambivalent image, the very significant but ambivalent image of, of him and Muriel and, 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 and baby Faye. Well, there.
2: you know, it could be something like if he's in the foyer and he sees this, gets excited, either asks or knows that she's the one who did it, you know, and she's basically responding in nods and shakes of heads, you know, did you do that? You, you did this. Um, you know, is is this really something that will happen? And and her look on her face could be actually quite sad when she says yes. Right. But he misses it. You know, he misses that. So it can be very facial, you know, in, in expression where she knows and you know, can't, she's sad, but he misses it completely. It's like, Oh, this is, you know, terrific. Yay. Yeah. Um, something like that.
1: And I wouldn't think that, um, I wouldn't think that either Vire or Mandos would be very much for facial expressions, anyway. <laughs> right. You know, right. I mean, I, I, yeah.
2: Brian's on my wavelength. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Me and Brian.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um. And as far, uh, uh Maria, as far as the issue of like the like the entering of the halls of Mandos, um, I, 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 I do, I do see a usefulness in having the halls of Mandos just be like not having living people wander into them so even having a like a guest area of the halls of Mandos seems weird I, I get that, I agree um, one of the things we could do conceivably is actually have Viri's tapestry be, be on the outside um, mm-hmm. or at least have there be some of her tapestries that are put on the outside um, even having the idea of um, of <sighs> The Valar themselves coming to her tapestries and contemplating them, right? Um, yeah, Maria could have a courtyard. That's the kind of thing that I'm thinking of. There right? you go. So you don't enter through the gates of That's Mandos, but there's a there's an outdoor courtyard, and right. and not all of her tapestries, but some of her tapestries are are there. Um, that I Sorry, think that I think could could could
2: could
1: yeah, yeah. Um, could work.
2: And of course, I'm saying the obvious, but at some point, then we'll see the living version of this tapestry, right? right. Yes. At some point, the Definitely. camera will Definitely. capture, you know, yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Um,
2: oh, I like that. Yeah, Brian said, um, it might be an interesting contrast to have the outside very brightly decorated and inside it's sort of dark and, you know, mysterious. Yeah, yeah.
1: Um. Okay, so uh, oh, one quick question that they asked as well um, was uh, what exactly, what rating are we going for with this show? Um, in particular, this came up in the context of, you know, they're thinking about the Orc Project and you know, torturing elves and things and, and, you know, is how do we want to, how explicit are we okay being? Is this going to be a, you know, as they said, is this going to be a no visible red blood kind of show? Or is this going to be a, a, I mean, you know, I think we're all agreed on the fact that we don't want this to be a, um, you know, must have three topless women scenes in every episode, kind of deal like Game of Thrones.
0: Um, but I think we're going for must have three topless women in every scene. <laughs> yeah, in every scene, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Clearly, uh, yeah. I not guess. every episode, every scene, every scene. Yeah, yeah. ample violence. Yeah, yeah.
1: Um,
0: um, I mean, obviously, not as maybe not as uh, you know, not as. I don't know. It's it's tricky calling Game of Thrones gratuitous, but it feels that way sometimes. Yeah. You know, not as much of that stuff uh, as as Game of Thrones, but but I mean, let's you know, like there's certain things that happen that are that are violent or or whatever. So a certain amount of explicitness. I don't know. What do you guys think?
2: I think violent scenes are like sex scenes. You can do a lot without showing a lot you know i mean in other words i do think we need to get you know convey it but you're right we don't need to get really super um what's the word
1: yeah you can you know we
2: don't need to do it in pictures there's stuff that can happen off screen there's dialogue i'm not saying to get rid of it completely but it's just i think there's a lot of horror we could create without a lot of we can show we can
1: show we can show violence yeah (laughs) We, we can show violence without having to, like, depict lots of decapitations and dismemberments on screen, right? You know, we, we, without having limbs flying around and blood spurting absolutely everywhere. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I, I do think that we, can, that we can avoid that. But, yeah, I don't think that—I I also don't think that we should be shooting for, like, a, a G rating either. Um, yeah. Because it's the Silmarillion, I mean, this is a, I, right. like, how on earth are you going to do the Battle of Unnumbered Tears in a G-rated exactly. version? You can't.
2: Yeah. There's a um, lot of scenes I can think of in the Silmarillion that we would, if we set the tone now to be too soft, we yes. have some issues later. <laughs> yes.
1: Yes. Um, yeah, exactly. So I, I think, um, yeah, Ruth Barrett says sometimes the unseen is, is more horrid. You know, You yes, have sounds in the background. I absolutely agree. That's what i kind of thinking, Bruce. Absolutely yeah. agree. Yeah. Yeah. Um yeah. not to mention that um the the I mean of course thinking about decapitations on screen makes me think of the Hobbit movies of course and you remember one of the issues with the Hobbit movies is that the 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 violence became both more graphic and gratuitous but also more comical um you know they were yeah. playing decapitations for laughs um by the end of the Hobbit trilogy and right. Um and now of course there's Tolkien precedents for playing de- decapitations for laughs um with Golfimble. but um <laughs>
2: uh,
1: but that's in a completely different tone right um
2: in contrast think of the Minas Tirith scene when they were lobbing severed heads into Minas Tirith with right. in their catapults right exactly you know yeah right that, kind of, that was horrific
1: exactly and and that's that's something i mean here shocking concept basically i think we could just sort of let tolkien be our guide you know and you think about the things that he said about not (laughs) sheltering kids you know um he doesn't shy away from 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 horrible things um and from gruesome things and but he also doesn't revel in them um and this is one of the um this is one of the things i mean it's it's always and I'm sure lots of people debate about this, and i'm just gonna I'm just gonna say this and not let us have a debate about it just because I can do that. This is one of the things that bothers me about George R. R. Martin is when I'm reading martin's books, I always have the feeling of not just presenting horrible things but relishing the horror, the horror, the horribleness of them right you know of, of pushing
2: them forcing them
1: yes of really like of really lingering. A thing, yeah. On the, yeah. the, 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 the horribleness itself. Um, and Tolkien doesn't do that. Um, you know, he, he, he will depict things as horrible uh, as you'll see, but it's not it's not about the gruesomeness itself. Um, so uh, anyway. Yeah, yeah. As Chris Graham says, Tolkien doesn't delight in bloodshed. Right, exactly. Um You
2: know, and I think it's a very much more artful approach to that. I think yes. Tolkien can takes a much you know, it's much more artful. I mean, I think that's difficult frankly to yes. create the kind of horror that he does do, no question in in the books. So, yeah. Um, and do it in the way he does it, it yeah. is really quite something.
1: And I mean, as far as like you know, with the the orcs are concerned, I mean, th- this is obviously the biggest, the sort of the riskiest thing in this whole season, right? I mean, to depict the captured or you know elves being warped and tortured and their spirits ripped out of their bodies, I mean, it's that's awful, right? And and I love the the image that you guys had um, had ma- of uh, of. Tivildo as the just like completely sadistic um you know Sauron having to rein Tivildo to in so he doesn't you know kill the elves because he's having so much fun um I, yeah that that's great i think that works really really well um do we want to be showing that on screen and have you know the elves screaming as like Tivildo eviscerates them no we don't really need to depict that um but we can convey that and i think that you know cuz again it's what it's what it's what Tolkien does. Let me give one extreme example. And and I mean this as extreme in two two ways. The extreme example, this example is extreme both of the extreme horror of the thing Tolkien is evoking, but also the extreme lightness with which he evokes it. How does Saruman breed his orcs? Where do the Uruk-hai come from? Treebeard speculates... That perhaps he has mingled the races of orcs and men. How do you think Saruman has mingled the races of orcs and men? I don't think it is by like genetic splicing and cloning, right? Um what Treebeard appears to be pointing to there and is rape. Right. I mean, I have to imagine what he is, what Treebeard is accusing Saruman of doing is presumably kidnapping human women and having them forcibly raped by orcs in order to breed a new species of half orcs. That's really horrible. I mean, that is so I, the, the horror of that concept, right, is uh, that's, that's as horrible a thing as we're going to envision at any point, right? Uh, no matter how hard we try. And yet, Tolkien is extremely delicate in suggesting he doesn't shy from it, right? But Treebeard's only comment on it is that would be a black evil. Yeah, yes, it would be a black evil. Um, So... So I, you know, I, I you know, I, I think that's that, you know, the, 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 there's, there's nothing that we're going to do that's worse than that. Um, and I don't think we have to be so, in, I mean, we, we are going to need to show something. Um, we are going to need some visual anchors for the, the orc torture process, right? To show them working towards, you know, we can't just have that happen off screen and we can't be as, as, as indirect as Treebeard is about the orc But um, but, but I do think um, we don't need to just shy away from the horribleness of it, um, you know, and 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 try to tone that down. Um, but again, nor do we have to show tortured elves screaming in the midst of their torture on screen all that much either. Um, um, now Lincoln asks, any particular reason why I assume it's human women who are being kidnapped for orc breeding? <sighs> The only reason, Lincoln, I think I... I mean, I don't have any reason. Again, it's we we don't know anything else about this except what Treebeard says. It's We just have to kind of deduce what must have happened. The reason I have always envisioned that is the rape of human women is because... rape... the rape of a woman by a man seems just sort of to fit the situation better. Um... Uh Yeah. <laughs> Brian Brian Federini suggests the lack of orc women in general. Uh <laughs> yes, yes. Um Yeah. Yeah. So I, I that's um Yeah. Yeah. Um It just it it, it seems the sort of the violation of the violation that that whole thing is seems to fit with the, the, the rape as violation concept. Uh, You know, the it's something being forcibly done to them rather than, something that they are being forced to do um that's why um that's why i think it's it it seems to me to fit better but um yeah yeah um even though i mean yeah i mean as marie says either way is technically possible as marie says it's you know it's theoretically possible right that like captive dunlending men could be could be you know led coerced, convinced to impregnate orc women. It's theoretically possible. Um, but it doesn't, that doesn't seem to fit the, well, I mean, the horror of what is, of, of, of the what the whole concept is really supposed to sort of evoke there. Um, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Um, one last issue <clears throat> that I have to bring up. So, we don't have to necessarily resolve this today. We can talk about this again another time, but, um, the Island. Okay. So one other change that, uh, the, uh, uh, the script people made was they added an extra Island trip. They wanted, they wanted the Island to shuttle back and forth an extra time. So they have the Vanyar (laughs) and the Noldor going on separate, uh, ferry rides, um, over to Valinor. um, I am not convinced. <laughs> I'm not convinced. And that, but here's here, here's my main problem. I'm okay with like I mean sure they can it, it could happen. It's not that I think it's implausible and especially since we do want to kind of establish a time passes sort of deal. Um uh I um you know, I'm I'm um In theory, that's fine. Um, My big question is like, what do we gain and what do we lose by making that particular choice? And in my opinion, it seems to me like we're losing more than we're gaining.
2: What would be the purpose of it is my question.
1: Well that's one of my things is that I was never a hundred percent clear on exactly what is gained. Um, but Nick, I don't see how that's more efficient. It's less efficient. You're, 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 you're making, you're like adding an extra but Is it
2: because there's just too many? Is there too many to hold on the, you know, is there nah, like this island it's, a big island
1: it's a big island. <laughs> it's fine. They got plenty of room. Um, uh, uh, well, is it
2: that some lag behind And, you know, we got to go. We're on a schedule here.
1: I, 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 the one thing that it seemed to me to gain, uh, in the way the outline flowed was, was Finway kind of briefly tarrying because he's like wondering what's keeping Elway. Um, so, um, I, I, I think, but um, okay. So, uh, Marie says we introduced the Island Ferry with the arrival of the Vanyar so that when we get to the climax of the episode, the audience knows how the Island Ferry works when the Noldor depart. Well, okay, but why can't the Noldor just depart with them? Right? I mean, wh- why, why does it, um, um, well, let me come at this from the other direction. Here's what we, here's what I think we lose. From this, and and I think this is important. What we lose is the connection between the Vanyar and the Noldor. Um, from the beginning, we have the Vanyar and the Noldor being quite separate. And I mean, the Vanyar and the Noldor are kind of joined at the hip until they get to, to Valinor. And what we lose, therefore, is sort of the change that happens to them in Valinor. The change we were discussing last time uh, for episode six. Um, when we were talking about the the departure of the vanyar to go live up onto Niquitil. um and you know the way in which uh you know thinking again i got treebeard on the brain now thinking of uh of of <clears throat> what treebeard says about the ents and the entwives right about how their hearts did not go on growing in the same way right that's what happens to the vanyar and the noldor Right. They arrive in like, you know, with linked arms in perfect companionship and they live together in Tyrion, but their hearts don't go on growing in the same way. Right. They 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 have different interests and do different things and they they live different lives and they eventually separate. And I like that. Um, And that both the closeness of them and the. uh, and the, the, then the eventual separation are both things that I think would be really interesting to show, especially since it then kind of makes it more, both more tragic when the Noldor depart, right? And the Vanyar don't. I mean, then like the departure of the Noldor is then like the ultimate expression of this, like hearts growing in different directions. Um, but also, uh, but also it sets up the, <laughs> okay, sorry. I'm just laughing at what I'm about to say. What, I'm about, what I was about to say was it sets up uh, sort of the awesomeness of the War of Wrath, right? How w- when the Vanyar come back and rescue the Noldor um, in the War of Wrath, it makes it sort of more awesome, right? That like that you know that they they're old friends and we and we knew their bond and we saw them together more. You know they haven't just been a, just been allied but totally separate peoples from the very beginning. Um, but, of course, I was laughing at myself because, uh, yes, we must be very scrupulous about setting up that particular emotional angle on <clears throat> that episode that's going to happen 10 years from now. But um, anyway, <laughs> I, I, yeah. Um, now, Nick is saying uh, without introducing the island fair at the beginning of the episode, we have nothing for the Vanyar to do in the episode aside from being there. Well, it's true, but I guess, Nick, what I would argue is there's not much for the Noldor to do either, frankly. And I don't think either one of them needs to be a really central focus of the of the episode. I mean, that episode, which is episode four, right? Um, episode four is mostly about the Teleri anyway. I mean, it's about Lenwe, it's about Ilwe, it's about Olwe. Um, so having the focus be primarily on them and just having that sort of acknowledgement that the, the, the Noldor and the Vanyar are leaving... Um, is, uh, is, you know, I, I, that seems to me sort of fine. Um, uh, but I don't, I don't. So, uh, Maria's asking, do I think that, uh, keeping the Vanyar and the Noldor together is more important than keeping the Vanyar's characters with a story in this episode? Well, my question is why, why do they have, would, why would they have any less of a story than the Noldor do? Um, I, right. I mean, it's okay. Um, and they get, and they're not the focus of the story anyway. They're, they're a sideline here. Um, in this episode, they're going to get enough time. I mean, the van, the, 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 the goodness knows the Noldor will get enough, uh, face time in the show. Right. Um, for this episode to really be focused almost entirely on the Teleri seems to me totally justifiable. Right. Um, uh is because we actually talked to the Noldor. Sure, well, we can talk to the Vanyar too, right? I mean, just the stuff you have Finway doing, have, have Ingwë with him, right? I mean, the two of them hanging out, right? Um, and get Ingwë's perspective on the thing. Why not? Um, uh. Yeah, yeah. Um. So I, I, I don't, I don't see, I don't see what. Marie says, why, why not? Again, I don't I don't understand why the Noldor need to be a big focus of that episode. Anyhow, it's the, it's a, it's a Tulare episode. Um, what are the Vanyar doing? I don't know. What are the Noldor doing? They're they're all doing the same thing. I don't I don't understand why y'all y'all think the I Noldor are, a good so, time. are so doggone. I got dog-gone. some
2: popcorn in my hand. Here watching the show. <laughs>
1: I don't understand why you think the Noldor are all exciting and the Vanyar are not. They're doing the same thing. If you're if if we're interested in what the Noldor are doing, why can't we be interested in the Vanyar doing the same thing that Noldor are doing? Um, it's 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 fine. <laughs> It's fine. No, it doesn't have to take away from Finway's agency. It doesn't just have to be following Ingwe. Um, we 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 can have he can be he can have plenty of agency. The two of them are going together. It's not. It's he doesn't have to be second in line. The, again, that I think is one of the things we potentially sacrifice by having the Noldor follow after. Is that we make them look unwilling. We make them look uh, the, they're they're <laughs> like the faint-hearted loiterers tarrying by the shore in in you know in in some of Feanor's words uh, from later on. You know. Having them just be, you know, Ingwe and Finwe both alike, you know, being uh, uh, being determined together to go to, to, to Valinor and not to wait seems to me not in any kind of diminishment of uh, of Finwe's agency. Um, and. Uh, uh, OK, both uh, both Nick and Marie are uh, saying that, of course, it's Finwe's relationship with Elway um, that's important and it doesn't involve the Van in any way. No. Okay. Fine. I mean, like, so there's a personal connection between Elway and Finway. That's, that's, that's fine. But again, so what? Like, you know, so it doesn't reduce his agency to, to,
2: yeah,
1: sorry. Can Elway
2: be saying to, I mean, Elway could be saying to Ingway, I'm worried about Finway. I mean, in other words, I don't know, maybe I'm off base here, but Elway's concern, I mean, other way around, uh, could be, um, (laughs) it's still early for me, (laughs) Um, could be shared with with. With Ingwe. you know what I mean it's like in other words the concern could be shared between them yeah, Ingway yeah. Could be and he doesn't have to
1: be and he too. doesn't have to be doing anything I mean Ingway doesn't have to be doing anything right. like I'm no. fine I'm right. fine with having the vanyard just there I mean the vanyard are just there in the book and it's it's okay like, it's there're going to be lots of, I mean there are so many characters in this story right so many characters and groups of characters and peoples that we that we have in this story, um, that there are always going to be lots of occasions. I mean, not all of them are going to be involved in doing something all the time, um, and so it's. I'm 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 fine with the 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 Van- I mean, is it uh, is it Finway being weak and just going along with the Vanyar? Or is the Vanyar being weak and just going along with Finway? I don't think either one of them really has to be. Even has to be weak. Um. Uh. And I uh, know. I mean. I. I I don't think, um, Maria, I don't think that my issue is that I think that, that it's too big of a change to do the, the extra trip. Um, I'm fine with that. I mean, goodness knows we've suggested bigger change. I mean, goodness, we were just suggesting that Muriel and Indus were besties last time. That's a <laughs> bigger change than just an extra, f- uh, an, a, an extra ferry trip. ride. Um, I just don't, I'm not convinced by the need for it. I don't see what it accomplishes. I, I I can see a cost to it, and I don't. I do not equally embrace the benefits of it.
2: That's I actually I would like do. to see Finway and Ingway interacting together more, both before and during the trip over, because I think that would accentuate their sort of drifting apart once they get to Valinor.
1: Uh, yeah. I mean, I get that. That's, that is one other thing that we have there, right? You know, with, uh, uh, you know, we were looking, talking about last time how we needed a, we needed a, a Vanyar character. Well, we have, um, um, we have, we have a Vanyar character in Ingwe as well, right? So having that available to us um, is cool. I don't know. I mean, it's, it's fine. I mean, you're, you're right, Marie, it does change what's explicitly in the text, but again, I'm not bothered by that. Um I think uh, it's yeah, we can change what's there and we've done that before. um, And I don't object to it. I just would want to make sure that if we do it, the it's really clear that the benefits outweigh the costs of making that change. Um, And that's, 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 that's my only, my only issue is that I don't, I don't, I don't really see the, uh, I don't really see the benefits Um, and certainly not as, not as outweighing the, the costs. Um, yeah.
2: I do want to point out that Brian Fattorini has been on our hill.
1: Okay. All right. He's 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 ready to defend the hill, is he? That's good. He's
2: ready yeah. to defend
0: the hill. Yes. Yeah.
1: Now, Corita, I agree that it's hard to fill screen time with people not doing very much. But again, we don't have to, right? Don't give them much screen time. Like the Vanyard the van- need barely appear. Uh, in this episode, again, it's um, a
2: Tilary episode. It's a yeah, Tilary it's a episode.
1: Hilarious. It's a Tilary episode. The focus should be on Elway and Lenway. I mean, Lenway and the and the ants are going to be a huge portion of the episode. It's going be like half the episode on and, on Lenway and the ants. And let me uh, uh, transition there, by the way, to say that I think it's um, I loved how that came out. Um, Lenway and Treebeard, Lenway meeting Treebeard and like wanting to learn how to communicate with him and to teach him uh, language. And what they gain and, and like the, you know, the, the and Ent wives teaching them things. And I loved it. Loved that. Um, uh, the way that that came out, you know, the way that you guys were fleshing that out, like actually seeing that, uh, that story really developed was, uh, was really cool. I mean, I thought that was, I thought that was, I thought that was, that was, that was, that was great. That worked really, really well. Um, but um, yeah, as uh, Chris Graham points out, the Vanyar and the Noldor are, are like the sea plot of this episode. Um, right. I yes. agree. I agree. Right. So yeah, we don't. We we're not talking about time filler with people standing around doing nothing. Um, uh, we don't. We're not gonna...
2: Brian Yoder is hilarious. <laughs> as, as as someone who is a slow thinking listener to slow thinker listening to a silver tongued fast talker, I am totally behind everything you say and your ideas. Almost always sound awesome and make sense.
0: Right. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Until you have time to think about them later, Brian. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Wait, wait a second. <laughs> That's the problem I always have, right? When I'll come back to revisit later on and be like, wait, what was I thinking? I can't even reconstruct my own thinking. So,
2: you, so you're a slow thinker and a fast talker. Exactly. That's my problem. Room, right? That's my problem.
1: Yeah. I think uh, I, 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 I think uh, I,
0: not I, alone.
1: I'm in you this mean, way yeah, exactly exactly, way. exactly like like Butterbur I think less than yeah. I talk and slower that's exactly what Gandalf says about Butterbur and I that's that's exactly me that's
2: exactly me I should come to think of you and I have a history of that where we go let's do this and we can do this and then we can do this and then, <laughs> and then about three days later we're like Wait a second. was <laughs> right. oh, the plan there?
1: Yeah, exactly.
2: What were we thinking? All right.
1: All right. Well, we should, now that we've spent almost the entire episode on this, we should move forward. Let's talk about ideas and themes in episode 2.7, which is what we're the actually The actual purpose about of the episode. The actual purpose of the episode today. Um, and this is, of course, not the first time that we've done this. But, you know, brief sidebar to say, I'm not going to apologize for that. I actually kind of like how this, how we've, We've been doing this. I'm totally fine with our spending only a portion of the show talking about the current episode and then coming back and revisiting it after, you know, this pattern of we throw out some initial ideas, then more discussion and thought happens amongst the script people, amongst people on the discussion boards. And then we come back and revisit it again later on, you know, so the, the way that we're always kind of doubling back and reviewing things and then, you know, taking small steps forward we're staying on schedule. So, uh, I think it's, uh, I, I, you know, I think it works and I'm, I'm, I'm not going to apologize. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it's funny. Nick is saying finally drama between the producers and writers. I know Nick, like who would have thought that like the Island ferry is like what we would come to blows over. Right. I mean, I, <laughs> I would never have I, be
2: great listening for the podcast listeners. Yeah. You know, I, w- it's like, I would
1: never have, have seen that coming. And Brian, Brian is Brian is gently teasing me about claiming that we're on schedule. We're totally on schedule. We were supposed to talk about episode seven today. We're talking about episode seven today. We're going to talk about episode eight next time. It's all, we're totally on schedule. Um, okay. So the big challenge of episode seven is that in episode seven, we are, uh, we are, talking about, we're covering one of the two, uh, most non-plot driven chapters of the entire published Silmarillion. Um, that is of Eldamar and the princes of the Eldalia. Um, it's not as bad of course, as of Beleriand and its realms. Um, but the main reason I think why it's not as bad is that it's about people instead of about places. So people get really bored and confused when talking about the different the different kingdoms of uh, of Beleriand, um, but whereas when we're just going through and introducing all the different characters, people find that more interesting and engaging. So, that, but but anyway, it's difficult. <laughs> Tolkien can take time off to be like, let me tell you about Finway, his children, and right. his grandchildren. Right? We can't exactly be like, let's do a couple episodes where we just do like a roll call, you know, like a, like it's like it's the you know the Elvish Mickey Mouse Club, right? Uh, of like all of the grandchildren of Finway, right? We we can't do that. So how do we how do we um, um, how do we how do we work that in? Um, my first. Um, Brianna Melvin says, I love Balerion and its realms, says the landscape painter. Well, see, Brianna, you and Tolkien have that in common, right? (laughs) Tolkien wrote of Balerion and its realms because he was a landscape painter, and that's how he thought and what he really liked, too. Um, So, absolutely. Uh, Anyway, okay, so, so the first big question, then, is what exactly do we need to cover? Um, This, this, this episode, this episode is the Noontide of Valinor. Okay, that's 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 what is the main thing here. Um, <laughs> Mario Gage requests that Elvish Mickey Mouse Club uh, should be this episode's title. By the way, Dave, did you hear what the, <laughs> what, the what the what the 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 the, the viewers suggested? The uh, uh, the the episode title, the session title of last uh, last week's episode, should be the one that you missed. What was it? I. Uh, it was Finway has a lot of reproductive work to do.
0: Yikes. <laughs> fantastic. I like it. <laughs> that was, was fantastic. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well you're not wrong.
1: No, exactly. He's he's anyway, okay. So um so so we've left Valerian behind. We're in Valinor. This is the noontide of Valinor. We, this is the biggest like meanwhile, time passes episode of the entire season, basically. Um, because we have to, every other episode can be handled in terms of a single moment, right? Like this episode is literally an episode that is, uh, you know, an episode from this epoch of time, right? So like the Lenway episode, right? Is, is here's this exchange with Lenway and this thing that happens with Lenway, which encapsulates a thing, which is happening over, over, you know, quite a long period of time. Right. Um mm-hmm. so um um oh, okay so uh, uh uh this episode we can't do that though. We have to have like Fanor growing up, right? From like toddler Fanor or at least juvenile Fanor through adult Fanor ready to make the silmarils by the end of this episode. Um
2: and along with phenarfin and fengolfin
1: Exactly. And we need fengolfin and Finar. Um I'm thinking and tell me what you guys tell me what you guys think. I'm thinking we don't introduce the third generation yet. We don't do Fanor's sons. We don't try to do any of Finrod and or, excuse me. <laughs> I called him Finrod. This is like how you know that you've been reading the history of Middle Earth too much. Um, I, uh, I, I last reread the Silmarillion in January and since then, I've been, like, completely immersed in the Shaping of Middle-earth and the Lost Road for the Mythgard Academy classes. So I totally just accidentally called Finarfin Finrod because that's what he's still named in the in the Shaping of Middle-earth and the Lost Road. Sorry. Anyway, um, yeah, so we're, we're not going to— have gonna... a
2: reason for your flip-flops? Yeah. You don't have a reason like that.
1: <laughs> well, I do just screw up, too, but uh, I do have a reason for screwing up that one. Okay. Okay. Um, I think that Fingolfin, Finarfin, and Feanor are enough for this episode. We don't. We don't want you know Finrod and Maedhros and all of them yet. We, the, sufficient unto the episode is the generation thereof. We can do them later on, right? Especially since we there's more, right? We also need Nerdanel, Feanor's wife, um, and 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 Machtan, her dad, right? Uh, the the right. master smith. So. F-
2: which will give us a little foreshadowing of the summer roles in this episode, right? This exactly. With, uh, exactly. A long
1: time. <clears throat> yeah, the 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 wonderful smithcraft of Fanor. Of Plus, um right exactly as uh, as Nick points out, they have foresightedly introduced Matan the the smith so that we, you know, he's been there as a minor right. character in in earlier episodes, so we're we're ready for him. Um Okay, so um and and uh I Uh, Of course, as Finway and Indus as well, like Finway's marriage to Indus has to happen in this episode. So, so, okay. So let's, so that, that's a, that, that's a, a glimpse of the cast that we need in this episode. Let's, oh, wait, we need another character. Rumil. We need Rumil. We've got to have Rumil, right? Rumil must, must be there. Rumil, of course, is the, uh, the, 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 the scribe, the scholar, right? Um, uh, who invented writing. Um, so, uh, so yeah, yeah, we need to, we need to do that. So, oh, good. Mar- Maria's making a list. I approve Maria of making lists. So here's Marie's list of stuff that needs to happen in episode two, uh, season two, episode seven, one, the marriage of Finway and Indus check agreed as well as the like consequent disaffection of Feanor and the consequent tension among Finway, Indus and Feanor. Right. So we've got that and that whole. Th- so we not only have to have the event, right? We not only have to have to haul in a wedding, um, but we also need to have the like, do some, give some glimpse of the emotional complexity of that particular family situation, right? Um, okay, so marriage of Finway and Indus and its consequent emotional complexity. Fanor growing up. Yes. Um thereby establishing Fëanor as the elvish wonderkind, right? We need to you know we need to establish Fëanor as basically successfully being what his mother wanted him to be, which is the best brightest elf there is, right? Um yeah, yeah. Um uh 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 three, Marie says, Feanor ticks off Rumil by inventing Tengwar. Exactly. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Nick Nick Poazzo says Rumil should be salieri to Feanor's Mozart. <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> Thinking of the of the the Amadeus film. Um uh yeah, yeah. Um though uh 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 script writers, could I request that Rumil be at least a little bit like the really funny Rumil that we get in the Book of Lost Tales, right? We meet Rumil in the Book of Lost Tales, and he's hilarious. Um, I, I I really love Rumil in the Book of Lost Tales, so um, uh, I I I just I just just think it would be fun, um, but uh, <laughs> Brian Federini de- demands it. Marie says, "How grumpy or crotchety can we make him?" I you know I crotchety as you please. I think. Um, uh, and Brian wants some, a little more tra la 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 Um, and I'm, I'm okay with some grump. Have him be salty, but like kind of comically salty, not just like grouchy, um, but like satirical. I like satirical, um, for, for, for Rumil, right? Um, uh, even snarky. Yeah. Yeah. I could totally see, I could totally see rumo being snarky. Oh yeah. Yeah. That would be, that would be good. Um, uh, okay. Uh, sorry. So going on with, uh, with, with, with Marie's list. So we had, we had the marriage, Fanor growing up. Uh, and I would say also, by the way, in, in addition to Fanor growing up as the wonderkind, his relationship with his brothers, right. Has to also be established in there. And that kind of unequal relationship that we discussed last time, which was in my opinion, the greatest consequence of having Indus and Muriel be best friends, right. Was the, the, unequal way, the way in which Feanor would look towards his half-brothers with some resentment for his father's remarriage uh, uh, as an insult to his mother, while the children of Indus, um, who were raised by the best friend of Muriel, look at Feanor uh, with nothing but love and so, and pity, which of course uh, is very well-intentioned and very good-hearted of them, but which he would but resent. But it just
2: makes him even more angry. Yeah. Exactly.
1: <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so... Um, so i i think I think that's um uh, yeah so again so that's like in the subheading or of the uh, Fanor grows up, then uh Feanor, uh and rumil right with rumil being uh, uh being uh the 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 rye sarcastic satirical love it um but boy if if rumil's too much fun, we're gonna have to like find ways to bring him in. He plays a really, really small role in the story. If he's too awesome, we might have to, we, we, we might have to keep him. But anyway, um, uh, four, Marie goes on, Feanor and Nerda now meet and fall in love. Yes, exactly. And I would combine that presumably Marie with number five, Feanor becomes Maktan's apprentice, apprentice and is awesome. Yes, exactly. Um, so, um, uh, yes, yes. Um, those, yeah, those two things definitely both, definitely both need to happen. Um, so, and, and, and you think about what we need to establish there, right? We need to establish the awesomeness of fanor in Smithcraft, right? How much he learns from Maktan, but how he, how he exceeds his master, right? Um, what do you guys think of Nerdanel? How do we want to do Nerdanel's character? We haven't thought about her at all. And, uh, we need to, we need to think about her. Um,
2: so, Will she be a smith as well.
1: Well, she's a sculptor. There's there's some there's some there's that's some references right. to right. her her being a sculptor. Um, so she's a maker as well. Um, and she can be. Uh, uh, and she's a she is a she is a marvelous artist, and so Fanor should respect her. Um, yeah, Marie adds she works specifically in stone and metal. In
2: stone and metal, yeah, yeah that's kind of
1: yeah, cool. Yeah, exactly. Um, so. Um so i mean she is she is definitely her father's daughter, and um you know their 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 relationship is definitely premise pre- and this is one thing by the way i think is is really important uh to make sure that we show is uh you know that the, the the women of the Noldor are as much into the whole making thing as the men are you know it's not just a we don't you know
2: well you know and i, I... Yeah, and Corita and Hakon are both basically saying Karita says, um, I want her to be an artist not too dainty and Hakan says artistic kind of tough and rough and I'm almost thinking, you know, these are these are sort of um proto galadrials. You know, this is the stock that Galadriel comes from. Mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm. you know, in terms of the Noldor women's. So I think it would be right to not have them be too dainty and coy and blushing behind fans kind of thing. Yes,
1: good, exactly. And Corita, I was thinking the same thing. Corita says she doesn't want her to be the pretty princess. Um, you know, we we have a few pretty princesses coming up. Um, I want her to be sharp, able to look her husband straight in the eye without blinking. Yes, Corita, I completely agree. Um, and uh, uh, Marie even says that she's not considered very pretty for an elf, so Fanor's interest in her is very much in her strong personality, her her adventurous nature, and I would I would add Marie probably respect for her skill as well. Um, uh, Nick reminds us that she is called Nerdanel the Wise, um, and... Uh, Now, Nick, one thing that I would point out is that the word wise, as Tolkien often uses it, especially in connection to the Noldor, who, of course, are the gnomes, who are named the gnomes because they are the wise, um, uh, that might seem kind of ironic, right? You know, the the Noldor are are called gnomes because they are wise might seem a little bit strange. Because, like the Noldor and the Silmarillion, perhaps not the A one example of good judgment on all occasions, right? So it might seem a little strange to be like they are the paragons of wisdom uh, from that perspective, but um, but the the um, the the word wisdom it means skill. Like if you are very wise, um, if you have wisdom, I mean, in the way, and it's very clear. Tolkien uses the word "this way" a lot, especially about the Noldor, um, in the in the early Quenta versions, in the versions of the Quenta that are in the Shaping of Middle Earth and the Lost Road, um, the versions of the Silmarillion he was writing just before he started writing the Lord of the Rings. Um, when he talks about so the the association between the between the the Noldor and wisdom is not primarily about their judgment; it's about their craft, it's about their skill. Um, so. That is so. So, so coming back, Nick, to Nerdanel the Wise, I do think we can show Nerdanel having good judgment. We have lots of reason to think about that, to to think that. But I think that, like, she's called Nerdanel the Wise in part because she is such a good craftsman as well. So, I mean, she is. um, I I think she can really be. We can depict her as one of the um, one of the real preeminent um, craftsmen among the Noldor, essentially. Um, yeah, yeah, um, good. Now, the, the, uh, uh, Marie is pointing out one of the little nuggets that we get about Nerdenel is that, uh, in the published Silmarillion, there's the reference to the fact that Nerdenel can actually change Feanor's mind. No one else can do that. Um, she does have influence over Feanor and she can talk him out of things or into things. Um, so he clearly has to respect her intellectually. Um, and she has to have a kind of power to, to persuade and convince him. Um, so I agree that that's important. But of course, the biggest, the biggest event, the biggest action that Nordanelle is going to, is going to perform, right, is she's going to leave him. Um, she is going to resist right. him. She's going to reject him. Um and that, I think, is something that has to happen publicly. I She doesn't get any lines at all in the Silmarillion. Um, I think we have to give her lines. Now, this is not a season two issue, but at the beginning of season three, when Feanor makes the speech under torchlight on Tyrion, right, to convince the, 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 the Nolor to leave, Nerdanel has to be one of the ones who stands up and speaks against him. Um Because the two of them become estranged and she resists him. Um, Now, Marie asks a great question. Would I like her to be estranged from him at the banishment or at the rebellion of the Noldor? Marie, I'm thinking she's got to be the moral compass, right? We have to show Feanor kind of going wrong, not just suddenly being wrong, right, or being wrong all along. We need to show him going wrong. And I think that Nerdanel is the one. Just as uh, Finway... Is oblivious. He has a blind spot for his son and can't see the warning signs of the direction that 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 Fëanor is going. I think that Nerdanel is the one who's very sensitive to it from the beginning and who is and who gives him cautions, which he increasingly doesn't listen to. And um, and I agree. Oh, who was talking about this? Um, Oh, Nick was talking about this, saying that, uh, you know, this is going to be the first example that we have of the consequence of a man not listening to his wife. Right. Uh, Men who have wise wives to whom they do not give sufficient heed is going to be a little motif. Right. Um, And so, yes, establishing that with Nerdanel and and Feanor. Now, Nerdanel and and Feanor is not exactly um, is not exactly a, like, Thingol and Melian situation, or, like, Feanor's not marrying up in the same way that Thingol is marrying up, or Kelborn is marrying up, or Aragorn is marrying up. Um They, Nerdanel and, and, and Theanor are very much peers, both in their ability and sort of in their status, because Machdan's been there from the beginning. Um But, yeah, we, we have that, um, um, we have that, that still that concept. Um, yes, yeah, Corita says, Fanor is smart enough to pick someone with a brain, but not smart enough to listen to her. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. pretty much. <laughs> the tragedy, right? With Fanor, it's all about tragedy.
2: Well, Melanie, isn't it? Melody. Yeah, it is. It is. J- 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 just a bit.
1: Just a bit. Exactly. Um, Um, okay. Lincoln asks an apt question. Lincoln, I'm going to, I'm going to, but uh, I'm going to warn you in advance. I'm going to kick the can on this one. I'm not answering this question right now. Um, he says, if we're getting Feanor and his wife in this episode, does that mean we also have Feanor making an unsuccessful pass at Galadriel? Because if so, I know exactly what the frame story for this one should be. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, uh, I'm kicking the can because Goadrial isn't around yet. We're not doing third generation Noldor yet. We're going to do third generation Noldor later on. Um, uh, Lincoln, I, I hear you, right? I mean, if, if we're going to, you know, we we need to do the Feanor Goadrial thing. Um, and that has the opportunity to get real ugly real fast. Um and Marie, you said this at some point back in the in the discussion boards a while back, which I thought was hilarious. This 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 sentence of yours, Marie, has stuck with me ever since that. You know, that like we want to make sure, you know, Marie says we we want to make sure that Feanor's interest in Goadriel does not come off looking like the creepy uncle who is right. trying to lure his niece down into the basement to touch her in inappropriate ways. You know, that's just not the dynamic we want to establish between Feanor and Goadriel and I completely agree. Um so uh, yeah, I yeah, I and I don't think um I I I I I think we can we can we can make that non-sexual, um, but I don't think we want to make it wholly non-creepy. Actually, I mean I'm kind of thinking that like the slight creepiness of his relationship with Galadriel should be one of those like advanced warning signs. There have already been warning signs, right? That Feanor is 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 walking down the wrong road, right? Um, by the time we get to to with Galadriel, it should be, I think, a little bit, a little bit, a little bit clearer. No, Brian, this is not bringing us to an NC seventeen rating. Um, no, no, it is absolutely not. Um,
2: well, the emphasis ought to be on the obsession he has for the Silmarils, or this this yes you know, idea yes. he has that will yeah. come to Silmarils. That's really the focus of it more. And he covets Galadriel specifically. Yes, Right?
1: yes, yes, exactly, um, um, exactly. Marie says possessive and therefore creepy. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, no, he's it's, you're right, Marie. He's right. not trying to fuel her up. That's not the issue. Um, it's a it's a possessiveness thing. And Marie, my thought about that. Look, wait, hang on a second. I said I was going to kick the can, and here I'm not kicking the can. I, I'm failing to kick the can. How, <laughs> how often does that happen? Um, but. Um, <laughs> But yeah, yeah, uh, uh, it's 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 about possessiveness, and his possessiveness of the of the Silmarils is a warning sign, and the fact that he's like getting possessive towards Galadriel, right? That 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 the same kind of acquisitiveness and possessiveness is creeping into his relationship with Galadriel, just kind of makes it more obvious that the, this whole possessiveness thing is is bad, is wrong, is, is a, is a problem, right? It makes it, I mean, having him desire to possess the Silmarils might not seem creepy. You know, having him have this sort of like proprietary, you know, uh, possessive, uh, relationship with his niece and her hair is creepy. Right. And, 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 and sort of a, a, a signal, as I said. Um, Okay. Um. All right. All right. Um. Okay. So. All right. But so, fortunately, I'm not going to talk about that yet. Um. <laughs> I I do want to make sure we don't lose the relationship between Matan and Feanor. Right. N- not to just have it be all about. Um. His daughter. Right. I, I, what I would love to establish is a kind of a uh, a um like a community of artisans sort of deal right a a a a meeting of the minds and of like interests among fanor maktan and nerdena right so that um all of that is on a sort of a more a more equal level um and that it's not you know cuz I, I certainly <clears throat> i very much want to resist the thing which I know it seems to me that any time there's a situation like this, a Hollywood adaptation immediately gives a kind of inordinate preference to the romantic angle, right? Um, I mean, frankly, in the books, the Smithcraft that Fanor learns from Mokhtan is frankly, like, more important, g- more greatly emphasized than his relationship with Nerdanel, right? But I feel like the standard Hollywood... Uh, uh, adaptation of this would be to like, you know, have like, and the, uh, the, 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 you know, the, the forge of Maktan is the mere backdrop to the moment when Feanor looks across the room and he sees Maktan's beautiful daughter and like, you know, the music swells and, you know, the, it, it drops into slow motion as she tosses her hair back, you know, <laughs> and that, like, <laughs> no, <laughs> no, you know I, I don't want it to be like it's it, it's not the 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 sort of the 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 erotic attraction and the 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 romantic relationship should not be primary with Feanor and with Nerdanel and with Moct- it should be it should be the the smithcraft that's what comes first for all of them that's what they have in common um that, that's what brings them together um so so yeah I think that that's um that would be. That would be fun. That would be cool. Um Yeah. Now Maria's pointing out that Tolkien has them meet in their travels around the wild places of Valinor. This is of course not in the published Silmarillion, but but yeah, they're they're both they're both solitary travelers. Um yeah, sure. I mean they have they can have lots in common. <laughs> right? Um you know, it's, you know, I like you—you you know, you're an artist. I'm an artist, right? I'm a solitary brooder. You're a solitary brooder, right? Let's get together and be solitary brooders together. Um, but uh, anyway, yeah, no. I mean, there, there are lots of there are lots of things we can we can do with that. Um, we should prefigure the Silmarils in some way. What should Feanor make? We can't just have him doing smithcraft without having him produce something right the the thing that he makes should be significant later marie nominates the palantiri as does nick that seems a very logical suggestion the palantiri are of course the second most important things as far as the overall story is concerned that feanor is going to make right so we do need to introduce the palantiri at some point um this does seem to be as good a time as any, as we need to give him a pre Silmaril project to work on, and one can see how the Palantiri could be like a, a you know, a, a warm up for the Sil- for the Silmarils, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Marie suggests also the Feanorian lamps. Yes, the Feanorian lamps that the Noldor use, and are and are, and are famous for using. Later on, remember Gwindor has one when uh, when uh, when Turin meets him. Yeah, the blue lamps. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um. Uh, now, Maria, I don't, I, I, I don't want to do the lamps. Here's what I want to do with the lamps. I want the uh, um, I want the lamps to be a post-Silmaril invention, not a warm-up to the Silmarils, but a but a knockoff of the Silmarils. Right. Um, especially when he begins to deny the 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 sight of the Silmarils to people. Right. I think that he can he can be making the the lamps as something that he will share. Right. It's like, no, the Silmarils are just for me. But uh, but here, you know, uh, fine, you know, I, uh, I I made you this. Right. Um, I think it could be. Yeah, I, I I can see ways in which we could kind of slant it in that direction. Um, that it's, he's trying to sort of satisfy them with, uh, with the lamps and, and while denying them the view of the Silmarils. Um, he could even, I, I could even see him <clears throat> because of course the, the lamps are, are they're useful, right? They're very utilitarian, <clears throat> but of course they're like nothing compared to the Silmarils. Um, so I could even see him sort of despising them or looking down on them. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and kind of looking with scorn at the people who think they're awesome, basically. Um, anyway, just, just sort of thinking about that. Um, okay. Um, swords. Here's the other thing, because of course that's his other big project is making swords. Um. Marie's asking if there's anything else that Feanor needs to invent. Um, I can't think of anything else that we must have, but we certainly don't, wouldn't have to restrict ourselves to the things that are explicitly mentioned. Um, Yeah, um, now Maria's suggesting that the swords are obviously post Melkor's release. I think so too. Um, I think so too. I think that needs to be part of the decline of the Noldor when they make swords. Um, lots of gems, lots of gems. Uh, remember, this is the time when the Noldor are making so many gems that they're that the they're giving them to the Teleri who are strewing them on the beach, right? Um, I would like to directly foreshadow the making of swords though. It's explicitly mentioned that when the, no- when Feanor <clears throat> is making swords, that Maktan is going to come to regret the Smithcraft that he taught to Feanor right so we have explicitly fanor using the metal smithing that he learned from makdon in a way that makdon does not approve and hates to see right so i would like to include in the makdon training uh montage that we get there that he would um uh, that he would uh uh be teaching him something which is explicitly which is sort of like sword-ish <laughs> but not an actual sword. I mean, he should be making blades, I think. Um, it's just that uh Maktan doesn't sort of have in mind what he wants to do. So yeah, Brian is thinking of axe heads or or uh or or a knife perhaps. Uh plowshares, Chris Graham suggests uh, Chris Stevens was thinking of farm implements too. Um uh yeah, it's this seems possible. Um question I have though about the swords. Doesn't Eonwe fight with a sword? Surely we have other sword wielding people. Right. D- does Fanor invent swords? I don't know that he invents swords. Um Brian Yoder likes the idea of Fanor beating ploughshares into swords. I Kind of love that idea too brian actually um, the, for those of you who don 't get it, the reference that Brian is making is uh, there are a bunch of uh, a bunch of of prophecies in the bible old testament uh prophecies uh, you know they're messianic prophecies right when when the Messiah comes and you know, they 'll take the the, the the swords and beat them into plowshares right you know so war will cease. And so therefore we'll take our weapons and we'll, we'll make them into peaceful implements because the, the weapons won't be needed anymore. And so that, uh, th- that specific image of turning swords into plowshares is a repeated image in these biblical prophecies. So yeah, Brian, the idea of uh, showing fan or, uh, beating a plowshare into a sword is really, is really funny. Um, uh, So Nick and Brian are saying that they had been thinking about uh, Aeonwe's weaponry being more an extension of himself than a physical weapon made of metal. Yes, yes, I can see that. But it it still doesn't change the fact that Feanor won't have invented it. That is to say, whatsoever material or immaterial matter or whatever, Aeonwe's weapon is made out of. It's still a sword, right? Um, that is to say, I know it's tempting to view the very concept of martial weapons, right? The, and and several uh, some people were talking on the discussion board about this, and I, I totally I see what you mean, and 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 in one sense I agree with you. Swords are a really big deal when the Noldor start making swords because a sword is like, it can't be used for anything else. Like you, you, you can make spears, you can make knives, you can do all that. Again, people were saying this on the discussion board. Um, but the only use for a, a sword is useful for nothing other than fighting. Um, and so therefore it's significant that they're making swords. I agree that it's significant that the Noldor start making swords. I agree that it's even more significant that the Noldor start stockpiling swords. Um, but I don't think the Noldor need to have invented swords. Um, There is, in a sense, there is a sense in which the the fall of the Noldor um, is like a recapitulation of the decline from the golden age or the fall from paradise. Right? Um, It definitely has that shape in the published Silmarillion, and so the idea of like first they're living this golden age existence in which. There is no war or conflict, and there's no concept of this. And then the the moment when this idea even sort of occurs to them, and they start making weapons, is a, is a, um, you know, is sort of a sign that they're, they, you know, their minds have already sort of become become vitiated. Um, but that's not exactly the situation. There is already warfare. There are already enemies, and they've met them. I mean, many of them remember the Dark Rider. Um, they know that there are monsters out there that are still. Uh, You know, Melkor may be chained, but that doesn't mean there's no bad guys left and they know there are bad guys left. Um, So the concept of fighting and that they need to fight, might need to fight. I mean, I think that's fine. I I don't think there's any problem with having them have that. It's how they do it and why they do it um, that we sort of need to to kind of deal with. Um, All this is as much as to ask really the question, could we have him? forging a sword Um, because I mean it would be kind of cool to have him forging the sword in this episode that he's going to draw on his brother two episodes from now that would be kind of cool or we could make the forging of that sword you know the, the brother threatening sword is one that exactly Nick he forges in secret later on and so we see that as a as a as a as a as a thing, um, <clears throat> I guess we don't have to go so far as having him forge swords here, but <clears throat> because if he does yeah, forge have- a sword, Maton's going to ask, "What are you going to do with that?" And then he'd have to answer that, and we don't want to answer that yet. We we it's not really until next time that we'd want to answer that question.
2: I have a little logistical interruption, Dave texted me that he's off his laptop and on the phone in listen-only mode. I don't know if you can... If he's on the phone, I don't know if you can include him back in or not. I just want to let you know.
1: We can try.
2: Okay. In case you were wondering why he's been unusually silent. Yes.
1: Okay, Dave, <clears throat> I just unmuted you, so in theory you should be able to...
0: Excellent. Yeah, I had to... Uh, I'm in transit, so I had to switch to the uh, phone, so... Okay, cool. Sorry about that. No but problem. I'm back. And you'll probably hear a lot of back no, background noise whenever I speak.
1: <laughs> no problem. No problem. Yep. <clears throat> all right. Um, so, this is all well and good. What we haven't really done <clears throat> in this episode is tie all this stuff together into, like, a cohesive story. Like, what is the theme? What is the story? The overarching story of this episode? Um, other than just... Fanor grows up and we get some like red flags that he might be going to go bad later on. That's all right. As far as like a goal of something to accomplish in this episode, it doesn't exactly make a, 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 a brilliant plot arc. Right. Um, but, um, fortunately we have a script team who can come up with that kind of thing. Um, so, um, so, oh wait, I, I know guys, let's put him on the island ferry and give him an extra trip somewhere. <laughs> It'll be great. It'll be great. Um, I'm just teasing you now, flag- flagrantly teasing you about the, about the, about the trip. Okay. All right. It's, it's all good. It's all good. Um, <laughs> Maria is forcibly sticking her tongue out at me, uh, in the text chat here. Um, uh, good, good. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think you know what we need at the end of this episode. We need some more foreshadowing at the end of this episode. Do we need another Viray tapestry or something? Some foreshadowing of, of what? Of like Feanor going bad. Like that is like that. Bad things are coming. Right. That uh, uh, we need we need maybe a maybe like a behind closed doors conversation between some of the Valar about um, about this.
2: Or a tap or a tapestry that's behind closed doors that maybe shows the kinslaying or the the burning of the boats or something. I don't know. I can't remember. Uh, Let's see when they get banished. Hmm. I don't know. Huh. How much would the Valar... are? I don't know. I. Ooh, or a Mando's Vire conversation. You know. That's <laughs> well, except, not we, except go wait, wait.
1: Vire doesn't talk, so we can't have them well, have a Well, I know,
2: but he'd be talking, and she'd be nodding and, you know. He'd whatever. be ta- talking.
1: <laughs> She's weaving. Um, yeah. No. Uh, oh. Yeah, see, M- Mario was thinking of a swan ship in flames. I really like the burning of the ships. I'm worried that that foreshadowing is too far ahead because that's a foreshadowing to next season. But of course, so would the Kinslaying be. Um, here's my thought. N- not necessarily foreshadowing it that directly. I got this visual image that I really like, that I think is really, really cool um, and works, and I think would work really well. But I don't know, again, I don't know if it would fit in this moment, but Feanor at the forge, right? He's at at the forge in Mokhtan's, you know, he's there with his wife and things are good, right? And everyone's happy, sort of. Um, And we see Feanor with, like, the, 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 the red glow of the forge on his face, right? And then we get a picture of Vire's tapestry with him looking at the burning of the ships, Right. So again, we see his, his face glowing red with the light of flames, um, but it, of course in a destructive rather than in a constructive context. And we, of course, wouldn't really understand the significance of it. We wouldn't actually see a boat burning or anything. We'd need to have some background so that the scene was recognizable when we actually get there, right? But... Uh, um, and of course, I the reason there, you know, Trish. The thing that I was thinking of the reason I kind of latched onto this when you mentioned the burning of the of the ships was the fact that, of course, Fanor his name means spirit of fire, right? So, um, that's it. That's the episode title. Episode seven is titled "The Spirit of Fire." Spirit of Fire. That's what it's titled. Yeah, yeah, that that can work. Um, oh, Karita says that. Nerdanel in the background can be sculpting a swan. I kind of like that. Um, so, yes, yes. Um, and, uh, and maybe, like, we can kind of... We, we show a close-up of the tapestry with the red glow on his face, and then we can kind of back up from it and see him standing on a beach with a, with a big fire in front of him, but we don't know what it is or the context exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Okay. That could work. And it, cause if the, if, if, cause really, I mean, I, I my, my initial title for this episode, my preliminary title was, this was called the noontide of Valinor. Um, but this episode isn't really about Valinor. It's really about Feanor. Um, so having it, having it be called the spirit of fire <clears throat> because it points out, you know, what his, um. You know, that sort of ambivalent nature, you know, that ambiguous nature of his, of his fieriness, right? The fieriness, which is good and drives his, you know, subcreative efforts, but which, of course, also fuels his poor decisions.
2: And, of course, having the, the burning of the ships be in the next episode, we just cover that at the beginning of the year by going previously on the Silmarillion. <laughs>
1: yeah, previously right? on this. Exactly. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. No problem. Um, now, one last question that I have here is... Um, I don't think we want to have Feanor going too far wrong in this episode. I still think he should be... This isn't an episode about like where Feanor went wrong. This is an episode which is... Th- the number one overarching goal that we would want to accomplish in this episode is to establish how tragic it is that Feanor does go wrong eventually. See what I mean? Um, Feanor is awesome and could have been the greatest of all the children of Iluvatar. Should have been the greatest of the children of Iluvatar. Like, that's what we want to establish. We're showing red flags. Like, we're showing the ways in which he has the potential to go wrong, the elements of his personality and the some of the choices that he's making that suggest that, you know, he's already in, you know, at risk of going down that road, but I don't think we want him going down that road
2: yet. Hey, did we do the trial of Melkor yet? Did we talk nope, about that? That's next episode. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, okay. Shoot. Because I was going to say the end of this episode in terms of what you were just saying could be him having his first Chit chat with Melkor, but that
1: could happen. Yeah, no that that's got to be that's got to be next time. That's so that yes, or really the time after next. Um, Yeah, because it's not going to be for two more episodes. So, well, that's one of my questions that I have, which I'm going to segue to in just a moment. Um, But um, but yeah, I think we need to we need to. Episode eight is going to be the trial of Melkor. I don't even think we bring Melkor in. I don't even think he comes up. I don't think he's should be on our radar screen at all yet in this episode. This is just establishing the you know the the life of the Noldor and Valinor and the awesomeness of Feanor, getting him married off, showing his relationship with his brothers, so that we care. We care when Nerdanel and he become estranged and she stands up to him. We care when, uh, Fanor and Fingolfin, you know, have this increasing divide. We see Finwë, um, with his blind spot towards his son. We, uh, see Fanor beginning to do, you know, really marvelous things. And I think, I think, I think that all works. Um, so yeah, spirit of fire. Okay. Um, but I agree with somebody. Who was it? Um, yeah, Brian. Uh, Brian Fattorini was saying, uh, I think he needs to have at least one moment where people go, man, he was kind of a jerk there. Yeah, absolutely. We should definitely see he has that capacity. Um, yeah, so like, if we do our work perfectly, people should leave this episode saying, wow, man, that guy is awesome. But you know what? Like, I could totally see him going bad. Right? That's that's where I think we would want people to be with Feanor uh, at the end of this episode. All right. Um, Questions for next time. Here's what here's, here's, here's my assignments for, for next time. Um, Next time is the trial of Melkor. That's the central event of um, um, uh, that's the central event of episode eight. So my first question is how much of the episode should be wrapped up in the trial itself? Right. Is this is the trial just like a major event in the episode or should it really be the centerpiece? Do we really want to do the trial like in full on screen and spend a lot of time with it? Um, You know, is this going to be as uh, Trish and I were joking before that the show is this going to be, you know, know, law and order, special villains unit. Right. As we're as we're 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 having a full courtroom drama about Melkor. Um, How 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 do we do that? um so that that's the first question how much of the episode is wrapped up in the trial itself two
2: also by the way by the way yeah, on yeah. that question let me just say um you know i know we haven't been talking the frame but we could you know, the frame could play a part in that so just saying that's a consideration yeah yeah in terms of like maybe relating or, or something about the trial so mm-hmm. that's it. okay on mm-hmm. question two sorry
1: okay question two to what extent are the elves aware of or involved in the trial do we make this uh, like a Valar only thing behind closed doors? Um, do we, you know, ha- because thinking, you know, the the relationship between Melkor and the Elves is going, and you know, the Noldor obviously is going to be really important. Um, how do we handle that? Um, do we t- how, how ignorant, in other words, are the Elves about what happened and um, and and why and all that stuff? So, you know, are are they there? Were they involved? Are they consulted? Like. You know, there are lots of options. Um, How do we want to handle that? Um, uh, My, two more questions. Um, If if really this first one I just thought of, which is really a follow-up to the first one, um, what else do we do besides the trial? How, are there other things that we want to accomplish? Do we want to go so far as beginning to have Melkor you know, cozying up to the Noldor and starting to, to, you know, whisper with them. Um, is that, you know, the other thing that we really want to accomplish that we want to, to show people happening in this episode. And then my fourth question, Murray is exactly the one you were just anticipating. Do we introduce the third generation elves in this episode? um, Or do we save that? Do we save those till, till next? So again, just kind of, reminding you of the overview here episode six that we just did right noontide of valinor uh you know feanor and spirit of fire episode eight is the is where we need to cover the trial of melkor episode nine is when we need the making of the silmarils and the pride of Fanor. so basically episode eight is the trial of melkor episode nine is when Fanor draws his sword on Fingolfin and gets banished okay so we have between those two moments you know, the moment of Melkor's release sometime in episode eight and the moment of fan drawing his sword on Fingolfin sometime in episode 10, episode nine plus either, you know, plus parts at the beginning and end of episodes eight and 10. That's the whole time that we have to show Melkor corrupting the Noldor and the Noldor making poor choices. Right? So, so in my question in, in part is how do we – and remember also in that time we need to introduce the third generation, right? We, 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 of course, as we talked about today, we don't have, you know, Galadriel or Finrod or Turgon or Fingen or any of those guys or Mithros or any of those guys yet, right? So they have to come in sometime. Do they come in in episode eight? Do they come in in episode nine? Um, how, do we, how do we handle that? Okay, so again, recap. Um, how much of the episode should be wrapped up in the trial itself – um, what else do we have? Do we want to show, you know, what other major events, what other major plot events do we need to cover in addition to the trial? If we don't make the whole episode be about the trial, um, to what extent are the elves aware of or involved in the trial? And finally, do we introduce the third generation Noldor in this episode or do we wait until episode nine? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Good. Um, Excellent. (laughs) Brian Fattorini ends with a question. Should, uh, random thought, should Rumil look and sound like Tolkien? I actually am kind of in love with that idea, Brian, I have to admit. Um, uh, just make it subtle, Brian, right? Have Rumil be fond of colored waistcoats, right? Uh, yeah, that would be great. Rumil should wear tweed. Oh,
2: and smoking a pipe for sure, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, he, he
1: <laughs> should totally smoke a pipe. Yeah, they totally would have had, they totally would have had pipes in, in Valinor because, of course, everybody knows that tobacco was imported to Middle-earth from Numenor, and the Numenorians right. doubtless got it from overseas. So obviously there is pipe weed in Valinor, uh, and so therefore <laughs> Rumil should be smoking a pipe, QED yeah yeah well, okay now you're right nick says that pipes are a hobbit invention
2: he's being facetious i mean yeah. how could ceremony be Saruman ends up being very envious of gandalf and imports all that pipe waste so of course it would have to be later right you're just kidding around maybe he could be smoking a hookah instead
1: <laughs> right because that's exactly the visual image we want
2: For, uh, sure yeah, absolutely yeah, i'm just yeah. full of ideas i'm just full of something <laughs>
1: exactly Exactly. Okay. All right. Well, thanks everybody. Uh, strong work, everyone. And uh, we'll uh, we will um, uh, look forward to next time the uh, the trial of Melkor, something I've been looking forward to for a while. Um, it's of course the other episode when we're going to get to return to the Valar very uh, uh, very very strongly. Um, so uh, so that'll be that'll be fun. But uh, thanks, everybody. So uh, I got your work cut out for you next time. And we'll uh, we'll go back.
2: At least we have two weeks this time. So yes, we
1: do have a a full two weeks this time. So, yes, our next episode. um, What's the day? The seventh. Our next episode will be on Friday, the 21st of October. Um, So uh, uh, very good. Thanks, everybody. Um, Thanks again for the work of the all of you guys who are. Making such thoughtful posts on the discussion board and being involved in the script discussion, I encourage more people, by the way, to get involved in the script discussions. I know that you know they have open meetings for people who are following along, following along. You go to the discussion board, you can find the announcements of when their of when their next script meeting is. Um, uh, you know, I don't want to by talking, uh, you know, talking to and um and about uh our our script writers. I don't want to give the impression that that's a you know. Sort oh of yes, that's route.
2: actually really good. They're In an West, open door group yeah. for sure. So yeah, yeah,
1: more collaboration would be would be great. Um, everyone is welcome, exactly as Marie said, especially uh, especially people who uh, won't invent gratuitous boat rides. Um, so that's. <laughs> Everyone, everyone is. Everyone is. This is. This is. This is going to be a. This is going to be a. is going to be a fighting point uh, between me and scriptwriters for a long time. Um, okay. Thanks, everybody. Thanks again for your involvement and for making, uh, film, film so much fun. Thanks for listening. and Godspeed.